If a zombie apocalypse made us hunter-gatherers again, how would our sex lives change? That's probably not something you were prepping for, but it is a legit question. Hunter-gatherers lead radically different lives than we do today, so if we became hunter-gatherers again, how would we change? And what would stay the same? In other words, how much of sex and gender is nature, and how much is nurture? The hit TV series The Walking Dead, based on a comic book by Robert Kirkman and friends, depicts the descent of modern-day society into what is essentially a hunter-gatherer state due to an outbreak of zombies. And while the show only follows the first generation of these neo-hunter-gatherers, you can imagine that their society may change several generations down the road. The norms of sex and gender with which we are familiar today might transform dramatically in response to new conditions. So what would life be like if we became hunter-gatherers again? Specifically, today we'll look at three questions. First, what would the sexual division of labor look like? Second, what about assigned sex, you know, male, female, or non-binary, what would that look like? And finally, what about paternity and sexual jealousy? And to answer these questions, we'll have a look at three hunter-gatherer societies, the Chambri of Papua New Guinea, the Inuit of Arctic North America, and the Aceh of Paraguay. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Welcome to the very first deep dive episode of the History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Brian Beard, for making this episode possible. Special thanks also to social media assistant, Jacob White, and launch team members, Tara Carlson, Matt Link, Luna Sheffer, Frederick Dumont, Ed Bernal, Christina Moore-Gotcher, and Nick Prisbilla. We all came from hunter-gatherers, so what happens if we go back to that state? Today we're exploring sex and gender in small-scale human societies. And first off, we're going to get just a basic idea of what hunter-gatherer societies are like, and that is going to have some major gendered consequences. All right, so let's get started. First, what are hunter-gatherers? What are we talking about here? So in contrast to agriculturalists who farm the land or horticulturalists who practice at least some gardening to supplement their diet, hunter-gatherers subsist entirely on foodstuffs obtained from foraging in the wild. So game animals, fish, berries, nuts, mushrooms, that sort of thing. They are the dumpster divers of the wild, or rather dumpster divers are really the urban version of them. That is no slur, though. They are by no means shaggy, ragged, and brutish. In fact, studies show that hunter-gatherers typically enjoy rich diets and actually tend to fare famine better than their agriculturalist cousins, since a dearth of one food resource can usually be met by simply turning to another or by moving to a different area. 
Hunter-gatherers tend to be small, typically comprised of no more than 150 individuals in a band, which is the theoretical maximum to be able to know everyone face-to-face -face and trust them. Although actual hunter-gatherer village size often seems to challenge that. You see sizes around like a thousand in a village. So the point, though, is small, quite small. They are usually also, but not always, highly mobile. With only a few exceptions, like for example the peoples of the Pacific Northwest Coast or the Yakuts of Eastern Siberia, both of which inhabit an environment rich enough that they can afford to stay in one place, most hunter-gatherers establish only temporary villages or camps while remaining nomadic or semi-nomadic. Much like Rick's group on The Walking Dead, they are small enclaves that tend not to stick around in one place for too long. Unlike Rick's group, though, they tend not to gravitate around clear leaders, and this has major gendered consequences. So pay attention to this part. Hunter-gatherers tend rather to be fiercely egalitarian, as anthropologists like to describe it. That means everyone is more or less equal in status, and if anyone tries to dominate, the others tend to take that person down a notch. That's the fierce part of fiercely egalitarian. And we know this by looking at hunter-gatherer groups today, as well as other small-scale societies. It's just something our species tends to do in small numbers, and you can see it even in our own behavior. Think of the last time that you went bar hopping with a group of friends and tried to decide where to go next. What happened? You went nowhere. Why? Because no one wants to lead. It seems instinctual on some level that no one wants to decide for everybody for fear of being seen as some kind of tyrant. And the same thing happens in small-scale hunter-gatherer societies. The way they typically work out the bar hopper's dilemma where no one wants to lead is to let whoever has the most skill or experience in the task at hand lead temporarily but if they start getting uppity ideas that it entitles them to more respect or resources than anybody else, they are quickly mocked, shunned, or excluded from the group. And furthermore, anyone who thinks that they can hoard resources, like food for example, is also likely to be targeted. Food sharing is an important social glue in most hunter-gatherer societies, and woe betide anyone discovered squirreling away secret snacks for later, that person is likely to be frozen out of the group. Thus, egalitarianism is enforced. It's fierce egalitarianism. Now, what are the consequences of this for sex and gender? If a zombie apocalypse reduced us to small-scale groups of hunter-gatherers, egalitarian hunter-gatherers, how would we change? Would that leaderless state affect the power dynamic between men and women? Or maybe even beyond men and women, beyond the male-female binary? And what about our sex lives? If we share resources in common, would we go so far as to share our sex partners as well? We'll explore all of that in just a moment. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Hi there. My name is Samuel Hume, and I have a new podcast called Pax Britannica. Pax Britannica is the history of the largest empire the world has ever seen. An empire whose flag flew on every significant landmass on the planet, and an empire that, more than any other, has made the world we live in today. Beginning with the reign of James VI and I of Scotland, England and Ireland, Pax Britannica will be a chronological history of the British Empire. From its early and tentative footholds in the New World, to the famous British peace of global hegemony, and into its disintegration during the 20th century. 400 years of conquest, 
trade, colonization, piracy, revolutions and rebellions, slavery, technological marvels and the rise of the modern world. If any of that sounds interesting to you, give Pax Britannica a try. Available on iTunes, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere else you find good podcasts. And now, the history of sex presents this. <clears throat> All right, proud to be American. All right, let's see what we got here. Um, soup cans, check. Uh, first aid kit, check. Rain barrel, check. And crank generator, check. Uh, guns and ammo, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, check. Um, what's next here? It's sheepskin condoms? I don't remember putting that on the list. Let's see what else here. Yoo-hoo! Hey there, stranger. What do you think of my changes? Changes? Well, yeah, to your prepper list. I mean, I thought it would be okay if I added some stuff, too, seeing as the future is going to be egalitarian and D- all. Egalitarian? Well, yeah, dummy, don't you read? Everybody knows small-scale societies are egalitarian. That means I get to say what goes in here, too. Well, well no, I... And you can't repopulate the future without me. I suppose so. What's this? Transgender priestess? Or priest. Whatever he wants to be called. Or she. Or Z. Well, yeah, but... Well, I... a lot of societies recognize intersex people. I mean, Seriously, we gotta get realistic about this thing. Here. Oh, wait, what's that? What's that sound? No. Wait. Oh, here no, we go. No, 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 it's actually happening. Oh my God, it's actually happening. No. No, I'm not ready yet. I'm not prepared. I'm proud to be egalitarian, or at least I know I'm free. And I won't oppress the other guys, whether he or she or Z. And I'll gladly stand up next to you and defend their seal today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. Sing it, Zombie Frank. I'm glad we put a karaoke machine on the list. That was a good idea. Thank you. Alright, we're back. Now the question is... If we became hunter-gatherers again, wandering around the apocalypse in small groups gathering what little remains of medicine, canned food, and Twinkies, while learning to hunt and forage again in between zombie attacks, how would sex and gender change? Well, we can get an idea by looking at hunter-gatherer societies today. Now, just a word of caution, the societies that we'll look at can't possibly represent all hunter-gatherer groups ever, especially since modern groups inhabit only the remotest pockets of land where the rest of us will actually leave them alone. And even then, most groups today are heavily influenced by us. However, they will at least show some of the startling variety our species can display given the right conditions. And the first society that we'll look at is the Chambri of Papua New Guinea. The Chambri inhabit the Chambri Lakes region of northern Papua New Guinea, and like most small-scale societies, they are egalitarian. That puts men and women on a much more equal footing. In fact, when they were studied by Margaret Mead in the 1930s, they quickly became feminist icons. Why? Because the women are the breadwinners. That's right. The Chambri are a fishing people, And who does the fishing? 
the chicks. They bring home the protein, and Mead actually observed men having to whine and wheedle to get a piece. I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to getting a piece of tail, right? The men are, to a very real extent, dependent on the women for survival. Now, this is quite an inversion of the norm, since in most small-scale societies, like all societies, men are usually the primary protein procurers. Normally, males enjoy an advantage in this due to their upper body strength. And I should say cisgender men here. Now, what does cisgender mean again? That's when your assigned sex at birth is the same as the one you identify with. You know, boring folks. Cis males tend, on average, to have greater upper body strength. And when it comes to, say, big game hunting or net fishing, both of which take considerable strength, well, that makes a decisive difference. However, for small game hunting or other kinds of fishing, women can compete in the same league. In fact, in societies where available food resources do not require massive upper body strength, it's not that uncommon for women to hunt as well. Among the Aka of the Congo in Africa, for example, women and men hunt together. Now, to return to the Chambri of Papua New Guinea, women do all of the fishing. And what's more, they do the trading too. They're the business tycoons of their people. Chambri women bring the excess from their hulls of fish to a neighboring mountain people called the Yatmul to trade for a palm starch called Sago. And they swagger imperiously over the Yatmul, whom they consider inferior to them. Let me tell you, Trump ain't got nothing over these sea sharks. In both fishing and business, they are the breadwinners of their society. They have power and they know it. Here's how anthropologist Margaret Mead describes the situation. For although Chanbuli, which is what they used to call them at the time, is patrilineal in organization, and although there is polygyny and a man pays for his wife, two institutions that have been popularly supposed to degrade women, it is the women in Chambuli who have the real position of power in the society. The real business of fishing is controlled entirely by the women. For traded fish, they obtain sago, taro, and areca nut, and the most important manufacturer, the mosquito bags, two of which will purchase an ordinary canoe, are made entirely by women. And the women control the proceeds in kinas and talibun. Those are shells used as a kind of trading currency in their society. Now, it is true that they permit the men to do this shopping, both for food at the market and in trading the mosquito bags, and the men make a gala occasion of these latter shopping trips, but only with his wife's approval can he spend the talibun and kina and the strings of konas rings that he brings back from his holiday. So the women bring home the bacon, and the men go shopping. How's that for a different gender dynamic for you? And it doesn't stop there either. Listen to how the two genders behave. Chambuli women work in blocks, a dozen of them together, plating the great mosquito bags from the sale of which most of the talibun and kina are obtained. The whole emphasis is upon comradeship, efficient, happy work enlivened by continuous, brisk banter and chatter. But in a group of men, there is always strain, watchfulness, a catty remark here, a double entendre there. What did he mean by sitting down on the opposite side of the men's house when he saw you upon this side? Did you see Koshalan go by with a flower in his hair? What do you suppose he is up to? Wow, I mean, talk about an inversion of what we are used to in terms of gender relations and behavior. Now, 
are the Chambri a feminist utopia here? Well, no, not quite. Later anthropologists after Mead have returned and found things actually not quite the way she described. See, despite dependency on women for food, men have their forms of power too, traditionally including local village politics. So no, it's not a feminist utopia per se, and it's not a matriarchy either. Actually, anthropologists have been looking for matriarchies the world over for a long time, and they've been hard put to find any true matriarchies, quote unquote, at least in the sense of a mirror image of patriarchy where women would be ruling over men instead of the opposite. There's no stiletto-heeled, ball-stomping women ruling over men like lapdogs thing going on with the chambri. But I mean, who wants a reverse patriarchy anyway? Patriarchy sucks for both women and men. I mean, masculinity pressures can be quite oppressive, as we'll see again and again on this show. So why would you want that anyway? Why would you want a reverse patriarchy? Meanwhile, on the other hand, small-scale egalitarianism, as seen in the Chambri and many other peoples like this, while never exactly equal and never entirely rosy, at least offers possibilities for alternative gender dynamics like this. I mean, there's no glass ceiling for women, or maybe there is, but it's equally above everyone because no one is allowed to get too high above anyone else. So anyway, the takeaway here is that depending on what we're hunting and gathering for after the zombie apocalypse, gender relations may look radically different. The division of labor may change dramatically. Maybe women would hunt and gather while men protect the camp from zombie attacks, for example. I mean, you could imagine any number of ways that gender roles might be different. It wouldn't just be completely random, though. There are still some determining factors, perhaps the most critical of which is childcare. I mean, however you slice the pie, you just can't change the fact that only half the population can bear children and only that half can nurse. And that definitely nudges things in the direction of childbearing people, including cis women and anyone else born with a functioning womb, being the ones who stay back at camp with the children, which is what you tend to see most often even in hunter-gatherer societies. However, you can still imagine a society where childbearing people do a significant chunk of the foraging, at least while not heavily pregnant, and mothers leave the nursing to a few while the rest go on expeditions. I mean, that doesn't seem common among hunter-gatherer societies. In fact, wet nurses seem more common in large-scale complex societies like Victorian Britain, for example, but nevertheless, you can at least imagine it happening. Anyway, my point is that it is believable that our society might keep what gender equality we've managed to scrape together thus far, and we might even achieve greater equality depending on the conditions. So that's something to chew on in terms of gender relations between men and women, but the possibilities are not exhausted by the male-female binary. What about non-binary possibilities? I mean, today we are finally beginning to recognize various kinds of transgender and intersex people. Now, transgender is the big umbrella term for a variety of identities that expose the messiness of the gender binary, whether that involves identifying as a gender different than that assigned at birth, seeking surgical alteration of sex, or even just cross-dressing while otherwise identifying with assigned sex and gender. Meanwhile, intersex 
refers to those who are anatomically on the fuzzy line between male and female where, you know, the machinery shows signs of both or neither. And we used to use the term hermaphrodite for this, but that ended up being a little misleading and now intersex is preferred. And by the way, transgender and intersex identities may or may not overlap. The line there, too, is a bit fuzzy. But anyway, recent activism has brought transgender and intersex awareness to the fore, and scientific discoveries have been shedding light on the issue as well. There does seem to be a genetic component to these identities. So let's talk a little bit about that. And then we will look at the possibilities of transgender and intersex awareness among hunter-gatherer societies. For example, twin studies have shown that in 40% of cases of identical twins, when one is transgender, the other one is two. 40%. And that suggests a high degree of heritability. And it's also strongly suggested by a medical curiosity from the 20th century. See, not that long ago, many doctors who were confronted with newborns displaying birth defects in the penis surgically made those infants female and just told the parents, raise them like a girl, it'll be fine. However, in about half of those cases, the original sex reasserted itself. The individual somehow knew deep down that they were male, and this implies that gender is not socialization alone. There is also a strong innate component. Finally, we also know now that although the production of testicles seems to be initiated by a single gene called SRY, everything else about anatomical sex is controlled by a whole suite of at least 20 genes, each of which can be on or off, weak or strong, leading to quite a wide variety, quite a spectrum of variation. I mean, you can have an individual with a vagina, but otherwise very masculine traits, or vice versa, or anywhere in between. So in short, it is by now clear, scientifically speaking, that transgender individuals are expressing something deep down woven into the fabric of who they are from birth. It's not a choice, it's who they are. Now, that's a whole lot of science that I just dropped on you, I know, which is, of course, a very modern thing. So if we lost all that science and became hunter-gatherers again in an apocalypse, would we forget about all of that? Would we lose the transgender awareness that we are only now beginning to develop? And the answer to that question is pretty much a resounding no. Transgender awareness, or something like it at least, is in fact fairly common among pre-modern peoples. Now, you may have heard the term two spirits, which is used by many Native American cultures to describe some types of LGBTQ folk. And that is, in fact, a modern invention adopted to replace the anthropological term burdash, which was deemed racially offensive. But two spirits does make a nod to various traditional concepts from the pre-modern eras of various tribes in North America, for which it has long been common to recognize more than just a straight hetero binary. Moreover, among hunter-gatherers, transgender awareness is fairly common as well. While most such cultures do tend to divide their world up according to a male-female gender binary, many also recognize those that are different, that don't fit that binary. And usually, it's phrased in terms of mixing or crossing between male and female in hunter-gatherer societies. And one such society that we'll look at today is the Inuit. 
The Inuit inhabit the Arctic expanses of Greenland, Canada, and Alaska, and although many today have taken up settled life with modern technology, their traditional way of life is a hunter-gatherer one focused on whales, walrus, seal, caribou, polar bears, and musk oxen, as well as birds, fish, and the occasional arctic fox. And when available, plants like grasses, tubers, and seaweeds supplement their high-protein diet. I just thought that was interesting. You don't normally think of any kind of vegetables being available that far north. Anyway, these hunter-gatherers of the frozen north generally divide their world along a gender binary, deriving, for example, their names for summer and winter from the roots Arnok and Anguti, meaning female and male, respectively. However, they also recognize individuals who cross between this binary. Such an individual is a Sipinik, and my pronunciation is going to be horrible for everything today. Google Translate won't tell me anything about these languages, so you're just going to have to put up with it. Such an individual is called a Sipinik, meaning one who changes sexes. And the plural form is Sipiniet, so one Sipinik, two Sipiniet. Now anthropologist Bernard Saladin Danglur reports, The Inuit believe that a fetus can change its sex at birth, and such individuals are said to be Sipiniet, from the verb root Sipi, meaning to split. Now in two out of three cases, a boy becomes a girl and several Inuit midwives state that they have witnessed the newborn's penis and scrotum being reabsorbed and becoming a vulvar opening in the perineal tissue. And according to Inuit beliefs, it is therefore important to stabilize these organs by looking at them or touching them to prevent their transformation if the newborn child is to maintain its sex. Otherwise, the process must be left to run its course. So here we see that the Inuit recognize the ambiguities that biology may present at birth, and they interpret them as a transformation, and those who display such a metamorphosis are socialized differently. Dongler continues, Abnormal presentations at birth have led to cross-dressing of such children or some gender reversal, be it the direction of the pelt on their clothing or their movements in certain rituals. In other words, Although the Inuit generally think in terms of a male-female binary, they have customs for those who do not fit it. Nor is this limited to cases of anatomical ambiguities at birth. In fact, sometimes sex presents itself all too clearly as male or female at birth, but the parents actually choose to raise it as the other sex anyway. See, in their culture, it is considered important to have both boys and girls. So in cases where offspring are all the same sex, one of them, often the youngest, may be raised as the opposite. One born female may be raised male or vice versa. But regardless of how one becomes a Sipinik, whether by presentation at birth or by parental choice, this status actually typically only lasts until adolescence. If one begins to menstruate, this is hailed as a hunting kill, quote-unquote, after which the individual is then treated as female. Meanwhile, those that develop male genitalia are recognized as male after their first game animal kill, so real kill in an actual hunt. And for those people, they cut their braids and they become male 
in the eyes of others. Now, Donglur does note the struggle experienced by these individuals in working out their shifting identities. Um, yeah, I can only imagine what they must go through being told that they're one thing and then the other, and it's like, just kidding, you should have seen the look on your face. But on the other hand, though, I would also kind of expect that these children are probably raised knowing that their transformation will come. It probably is fairly obvious early on before these kills, quote-unquote, that, you know, they're different, right, in this way. And although they would surely experience the pain of being different, the pain of being unlike other children, at least they would know the nature of their difference. I mean, much as with transgender children today, who at least in some families are beginning to be told that, yes, trans people do exist and are not monsters, these Inuit children may derive some solace from being able to say, I am a Sipinik. You know, they can make sense of it in terms of their cultural categories. In fact, it may even be a mark of pride. See, Don Glur explains that Sipinit are actually held in high regard in this culture and thought to be possessed of versatility, self-reliance, and shamanic mediating powers. And that last thing, the magical aspect, is of particular note as the phenomenon of cross-dressing shaman is actually pretty common across many small-scale societies, whether hunter-gatherer or not. It's almost as if the male-female binary becomes an opportunity to effectively mark an individual off as different and special by violating it. It's like you got male and you got female, and if there's something that isn't that, it's like, whoa, just an aura exudes from that person. It's like something that makes you wake up and say, oh, pay attention. In any case, the Inuit example shows that even among hunter-gatherer groups, without the advantage of modern science and medicine, assigned sex may still be recognized as a complicated affair. If we became hunter-gatherers again, we would not necessarily lose transgender and intersex awareness. Such people would still be around. In fact, the current incidence rate of transgender individuals in America is about a half a percent, which means that if there isn't one in your apocalyptic hunter-gatherer band of 150 individuals or less, there might well be one in a neighboring band. Meanwhile, the prevalence of intersex people is about the same, about half a percent or even higher depending on what traits you count, maybe as high as 1.7% globally, making them almost as common as people with red hair. Moreover, if the Inuit are any indication, those who don't neatly fit the binary may find a place in your band and perhaps even a place of prestige. Their prospects may not be rosy exactly. I mean, the challenge of a gender identity may still be a struggle, but at least we can say that awareness need not be wiped out by a zombie apocalypse. In fact, if our modern society were brought low by hordes of brain eaters, such individuals may become important. They could well be our future priests and priestesses, or priestesses, whatever they want to be called. So, in short, if you are transgender or intersex, well, see you in the wasteland. So that's a little about assigned sex among hunter-gatherers. Now, our final question for today is, if food sharing is so important in these egalitarian societies, then do they share spouses as well? And the answer to that is 
yeah, no. <laughs> it's, it's just a resounding, it's just a straight up no. Even among egalitarian hunter-gatherers, pair bonding remains the norm, usually in the form of either serial monogamy, meaning one mate at a time, though perhaps multiple over the course of a lifetime, and there's always just a little bit on the side, or polygyny, meaning one husband with multiple wives. However, some tribes do put a different spin on that model. And this brings us to our final hunter-gatherer society for today, the Ache of Paraguay. So what's so different about the Ache? Here it is. They have multiple fathers. That's right, multiple fathers. And I don't mean like in full house with a daddy and some live-in buddies. I mean literally multiple fathers. Here's how anthropologists Hill and Hurtado report it. A man or men who is frequently having intercourse with a woman at the time when her blood ceased to be found is considered to be the real father of her child. These primary fathers are most likely to be the ones who take on a serious parenting role. Secondary fathers are also generally acknowledged and can play an important role in the subsequent care of a child. Secondary fathers include all those men who had sexual intercourse with a woman during the year prior to giving birth, including during pregnancy, and the man who is married to a woman when her child is born. So let me break that down for you. See, the Ache are one of numerous tribes in the Amazon region. The Ache are a little bit outside the Amazon, but these beliefs spread across the whole region. The Ache are one of these tribes who believe in something called partible paternity. And basically that means that in their beliefs, conception happens not all at once, but as a cumulative event. The Ache believe that to make a child requires a piling up of semen inside the womb, and not until a sufficient amount is gathered within the womb does conception happen. And once it happens, it requires more semen to properly grow and mature the fetus. It's kind of a hobo stew theory of conception. Everything goes into the pot and it all contributes to the whole. Now, consequently, if a woman lies with multiple men in the weeks leading up to conception or in the months after, in the words of the Ache, they are quite literally all the fathers. See, Hill and Hurtado probably shouldn't have used the word real father. What they meant was primary father because in the eyes of the Ache, they are all the real fathers. That's the whole point. And this view continues beyond conception as well. Once the child is born, the child is cared for by a primary father called the miare, or the one who put it in, but the child also continues to be aided by the secondary fathers called perorare, or ones who mixed it, mombarare, or ones who spilled it out, or baikuare, or ones who provided the child's essence. And although it's not correct in a scientific sense, in terms of social strategies, here's the interesting part, partible paternity actually does kind of sort of work. And how does that work, actually? I mean, multiple daddies? I mean, what does that actually look like in real practice? I know people who are polyamorous, and when I ask them what it's like, they generally say, it's a lot of hard work. 
I mean, keeping multiple partners happy, both sexually and emotionally, is a difficult balancing act. Worth the effort, perhaps, but difficult nonetheless. And hunter-gatherers in societies with partible paternity beliefs actually tend to agree. For example, the Yanomami, an Amazonian tribe with partible paternity beliefs, say that they expend much energy and become thin from the effort of making a child. I mean, you see on TV, you know, depictions of couples that are trying to conceive and how exhausted they look. Now imagine if your beliefs told you you had to do that over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, you can just imagine getting thin from the effort. It's not just physical effort, though, but emotional effort as well. So to return now to the Ache, how does it work out having multiple fathers and therefore the potential for sexual jealousy? Among the Ache, men are not supposed to get jealous. Their culture strongly discourages it. But guess what? It still happens. Anthropologist Susan Hurdy writes, Are husbands jealous? Among the Ache, men deny it, but then later beat their wives. Succinctly put. So yeah, jealousy is a thing. It remains a problem even in these societies. And it's not just among the Ache, but, you know, like I said, across the whole span of the Amazon region, of peoples that have these same beliefs. And even though these tribes exert strong social pressure against jealousy, it still rears its ugly head. It's just a liability of the partible paternity system. But despite having problems like this, partible paternity still actually turns out to be worth it. The reason that these beliefs have become prevalent in this region, so far as we can figure out, is because a child with more than one father has a sort of insurance policy of sorts. See, if one father dies or is otherwise out of the picture, there's another father to provide for that child. And even among children who have all their fathers, you know, none of them die, they actually have a higher survival rate. Studies of the Ache have shown that children with multiple fathers are 15% more likely to survive to age 10 than those with only one father. 15%. That's nothing to sneeze at. Now, you could ask at this point, well, how many fathers do you want? I mean, is it the more the merrier or what? And the truth is, you actually don't want too many fathers. Not only does it increase the risk of sexual jealousy that we were talking about just a moment ago, but also there's a kind of bystander effect that kicks in, whereby the more fathers that you can see not helping a child, the more you feel free to not help that child either. You know, it's just like people standing around a car accident and nobody dials 911, even though you all could do it. So I don't imagine that anyone has an entire football team of fathers. And actually, anthropologists Hill and Hurtado investigated how many fathers typically occur in Aceh society, and they found that the optimum number seems to be two, two fathers. That gives the child an additional source of aid while keeping the potential for conflict due to sexual jealousy as well as that bystander effect to a reasonable minimum. Two fathers seems to be the ideal number in this society. So how about that for alternative family arrangements? I mean, that's pretty different. The Ache represent a case where beliefs about sex can lead to dramatically different social arrangements. Now, if we became hunter-gatherers again due to a zombie apocalypse, would we likewise develop new and unique social arrangements like this? It's possible. Some variation of cultural beliefs could lead to a previously unheard of shape of the family or dynamic between gender relations. 
especially if the new arrangements actually turn out advantageous under the right conditions, as in the case of the Ache. I mean, we might not go for partible paternity specifically, but something could be different. Well, actually, there is a way that we might go for partible paternity, but only if there was some line of cultural transmission from Ache survivors to us. And so I guess you could imagine a post-apocalyptic group of hunter-gatherers, not unlike Rick's group on The Walking Dead, finding and dusting off a copy of Hillen Hurtado's book about the Ache and learning about partible paternity. I mean, that's a whole new season right there. You're welcome, writers of The Walking Dead. <laughs> I would love to watch that season. Anyway, at this point, you might think, wait a minute here, our descendants in an apocalypse, would they really believe this? They'd be like, nah, conception doesn't work that way because science. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, our culture's grasp of science is not as tight as we like to think. I mean, for crying out loud, there are people today who believe that the Earth is flat. So, maybe? I mean, especially after an apocalypse undermines faith in current Western beliefs, including science. I could believe it, at least possible, that some group might go for it. And if it should prove advantageous in those conditions, in the same way that it has in the Amazon, it could spread to other groups and thereby take off. So how about that for a fun vision of the future? Double daddies. I mean, that sounds like a fun game to play. Double daddies. Paternity power blend. So in the end, what does the zombie apocalypse teach us about sex and hunter-gatherers? Well, we've seen that although some things are certainly genetic and therefore tend to be fairly universal across cultures, there's also a lot of cultural variation. The gender norms that we have now in the modern West are not set in stone. Rather, they are temporary social developments that could, given the right motivation, perhaps a horde of zombies chasing you, transform radically. If we became hunter-gatherers again, we might develop quite different dynamics. As a small-scale society, we would most likely become egalitarian, and that would bring men and women nearer to equality, although it's never quite perfect. And moreover, the example of the Chambri shows us that the social dominance of men is not necessarily inevitable. Depending on the food resources available and what it takes to obtain them, things could turn out quite differently. If it doesn't take massive upper body strength or other uniquely male advantages, or if for some other reason it takes something where women have a decisive advantage, gender power dynamics could very well flip. Meanwhile, the example of the Inuit reminds us that we need not necessarily lose awareness of non-binary individuals. There could be a future for those who, like the Sipaniyat, cross or straddle the male-female binary, and they might even find a place of prestige. Finally, the example of the Ache demonstrates that even something so basic, quote-unquote, as the nuclear unit of mother-father-child need not be taken for granted. Depending on cultural beliefs, different social arrangements may evolve. Our future as hunter-gatherers could be quite different indeed. So that brings us nearly to the end of our introductory episode on hunter-gatherers. But you might be left with one question, though. You might be saying, wait a minute, Mr. B.T. Newberg, can existing hunter-gatherer groups really teach us anything about what life would be like in a zombie apocalypse? I mean, wouldn't things be radically different with potential brain-eaters lurking behind every bush? And the answer to that is, honestly, I don't think so. 
Not if the zombies are traditional zombies, you know, slow and stupid anyway. See, our number one natural enemy as a species has always been ourselves. And I suspect that one smart Borneo headhunter poses a far greater threat than a whole horde of drooling zombies. But honestly, I don't know for sure what would happen, so I turn it over to you. What do you think? Would there be a different result? Am I full of crap here? Or would there be some other way that the zombie threat would dramatically change sex and gender for us? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can chime in on our Facebook page where we are at History of Sex Pod. I'd love to hear from you. Today we looked at sex and gender in some of the smallest scale societies, that of hunter-gatherers. But what about something that is much closer to home? What does or what can sex and gender look like in highly complex modern societies? Now, you might think that's a stupid question because most of us live in such societies, so it should be a no-duh, right? But in fact, looking at your own society is one of the most difficult things to do because it's so close, it's hard to be objective. And that's why our special theme for this year is going to be Sex in the Third Reich. That's right, we are diving deep into what it was like to be a woman, man, straight, queer, you name it, in Nazi Germany. For example, did you know that young girls were encouraged to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? They were, and that's just the beginning. Much as in The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, women were put to the service of the state as baby-making machines. What was it like for these women? Or for the men pressured to father as many children as possible under threat of demotion? Or how about for homosexuals, who were expected to bear children too, or else? For the answer to these questions, you'll want to follow this year's ongoing series, Sex in the Third Reich. It begins next month and continues every other month after that, alternating with a variety of other fascinating historical eras and cultures. Meanwhile, for the rest of this month, each week we'll have a variety of shorter episodes, which I like to call short shorts, exploring more about hunter-gatherers and other topics, as well as a showcase episode featuring Joey Burnell of the podcast Born Yesterday, who's going to tell us about the history of gay bars. Interested? Hit subscribe to make sure that you get it as soon as it comes out. In fact, if you'd like to support this project, this show, subscribing, rating, and reviewing is the best thing that you can do. We are also on Patreon if you'd like to throw a few bucks our way and get some sweet perks in return, including a hand-drawn portrait. And you can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That's B-T-N-E-W-B-E-R-G. But honestly, even better than throwing money our way, the best way to support us or to support any new podcast is to subscribe, rate, and review. Those three things make search algorithms rank a show higher in search results so that we get more exposure and so that more people find us. And with enough downloads, we might even get on the new and noteworthy section of iTunes, which would exponentially multiply our exposure. So if you would like to see this project succeed, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for your support. Series and episodes theme music is by Kevin McLeod. The theme music for each society explored today is their traditional music, with the exception of that of the Ache. The track is an Ache man with a traditional instrument, but the vocal melody sounds pretty modern to me. Sorry, it's the best I could find. Surprise, surprise, hunter-gatherers aren't always YouTube stars. 
Credits for these videos and more can be found at our website at www.historyofsexpod.com. Logo design is by Rachel Westhoff. And animations, that's right, animations. We really went all out with this show. Our courtesy of the extremely talented Maxime Conrardi. Check those out on YouTube, where once again we are History of Sex Pod. All right, everybody, that's it for today. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex.